Thank you, thanks, and Emma, and Catherine as well. Um, do keep that open. It would be great if you could keep a finger in Acts 23 and 24. But first of all, rock bottom. What comes to mind when you hear those two words, rock bottom? I've had the pleasure, well, mostly a pleasure of this season helping Lanks out in coaching an under eight boys team. And it's been really brilliant on the whole. We've had ups and downs and everything in between. And it's been great seeing them really enjoy playing football with each other every Saturday and how they've developed over the season. But looking back, I can pinpoint exactly where things felt like they hit rock bottom. On this particular match day, we were playing a fairly good side who'd beaten us narrowly a couple of weeks before. And Lanks wasn't around this weekend, so it was over to me to take on the managerial reins for this match. Perhaps you can see where this is going already. But another factor in the mix was that this was the weekend where Storm Eunice decided to hit as well. It had been fairly pleasant up until this point. The Friday was actually quite nice. We warmed up on the Saturday in sunshine. But just as the match kicked off, the weather turned, the temperature plummeted, the wind picked up, the rain began to fall and quite quickly became torrential. And things went from bad to worse very quickly. We went 4-0 down inside about five minutes. And it just kept getting worse. I thought we were in for a really long day. Thankfully, we weren't actually in for that long of a day because with the scoreline reading 7-0, lots of tears and a few eight-year-olds on the verge of hypothermia, me and the other team's manager decided to call it off early. He was this big, burly South African man wearing shorts, unfazed by the weather. He actually looked a bit reluctant to call off the game. I suppose you would when you're 7-0 up. And after I'd helped him put the goals down, got back in the car, soaked to the bone, my hands burning from the cold, I sat there for 15 minutes trying to warm up before I could drive. And all I could think was, man, that could not have gone any worse. <laughs> it was awful. We lost, we were cold, we didn't enjoy ourselves. It really was rock bottom across our season. Do you ever feel like you've hit rock bottom? I appreciate that's a trivial example. And when you first saw the phrase rock bottom, your mind maybe went to more serious things than a game of boys football. Rock bottom for you may actually have been a really dark time. Think back to the lockdown when we thought restrictions were easing, but actually they tightened. Or maybe it's financial worry as the price of living currently goes up. And while rock bottom is not to be taken lightly at all, it's good to think about how we react in those moments. What do you actually do? Where do you go for comfort? Do you give up? Do you fight with all that you've got? Or maybe you run to a Netflix series or food or alcohol or exercise or church. Well, I wonder as well, do you ever think Paul felt like he was at rock bottom? He may well have had every reason to. Up to this point in our series, Mission Unstoppable, we've seen that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the whole uh, Paul's ministry, the good news of Jesus Christ, has been spreading throughout the world. And just as the number of believers has been on the rise, so has the opposition. And here's the current scene. Paul's made it to Jerusalem after having certain routes closed off to him. He's arrested without committing a crime, nearly flogged, thrown into prison, and finds himself in the middle of a theological and physical battle between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, an uproar so aggressive that Paul was in danger of being torn to pieces. 
rock bottom? So that's the situation. And as we just had read, now the Jews have a plot to end his life. Could things be going any worse for Paul? But here's where we see how Paul reacts when he's at rock bottom and the wonderful truth of Mission Unstoppable. That even when it seems like it's at rock bottom, God still sustains his people and provides opportunities. God keeps his people safe, he strengthens them and provides them with opportunities to be sharing the good news of Jesus. And we've got two scenes throughout this passage. The first one is in Jerusalem, chapter 23, and then the second one is in Rome. And both chapters have a similar thread. There's a threat, there's a defence, and there's an opportunity. We'll unpack these chapters first, and then we'll think about what that looks like for us. So come with me, verse, chapter 23, verse 12. Firstly, the threat in Jerusalem. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There's the threat. Paul's life is in danger about, after speaking the bold truth of Jesus Christ. Note how this conspiracy is straight away off the back of the argument in the Sanhedrin. The, Sanhedrin. the very next morning, no time for the dust to settle, Paul must be killed. And they're serious about this too. Verse 13, more than 40 men were involved, all to kill one guy, taking an oath not to eat or drink until Paul is dead. How much must you want somebody dead if this is what you're willing to do to kill him? And then did you see the line, verse 15? You and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about the case and then we'll kill him before he gets here. Let's just take a moment to appreciate how insidious this plot is. You've got 40 men starving themselves until blood is shed. Even the chief priests and the elders are involved as they lie to the Roman authorities and lie in ambush for Paul. This is a serious threat. And then comes the defence, verses 16 to 22. Word gets out about his conspiracy. Paul's nephew hears about the plot and explains to Paul what's going on. Paul sends him to the commander to pass on the news. And last week we saw that this commander, who was on the verge of flogging Paul before realising he was a Roman citizen, he was alarmed at doing so, afraid for his own sake. Clearly, punishing a Roman citizen, particularly one yet to be found guilty of anything, would get him in trouble. And so, perhaps out of guilt or rightful protection of, the fellow, of fellow citizens, the commander comes to Paul's defence. He hatches his own plan to keep Paul from harm. And then this is what leads to the opportunity, the opportunity for safety, for a new place, for new people to proclaim the unstoppable gospel to the commander defends Paul from the Jews and the plan is put in place to transfer Paul to Caesarea. Now, if he thought the Jews' plan to kill Paul was elaborate, how about this? 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to take one man safely from A to B. The Jews' oath not to be able to drink shows how desperate they were for Paul to be dead. But how much more desperate is the commander for Paul to be alive? And so to Governor Felix he is sent under the cover of darkness who decides to keep him under guard until the accusers get there in Herod's palace, no less. There's a court case to follow and the Jews have to make the journey as well from Jerusalem. And we see that even while Paul may seem like he's at rock bottom, imprisoned, life in danger, 
God still sustains him and provides him with opportunities. This is what leads us into scene two, inside the Roman courtroom. Here again, we see there's a threat, a defence and an opportunity. Perhaps you can picture the scene. You've got Paul on one side, perhaps flanked by a Roman guard. The Jews on the other side, loads of them, outnumbering Paul by a long way. You've got maybe a jury, a few in the crowd. And then up the top, Governor Felix, watching on, presiding over everything. And we're underway. Firstly, the threat. This time it comes in the form of the Jews and their accusations against Paul and his ministry. Note who's there in opposition to Paul. You've got the high priest of the Jews, some of the elders and a skilled lawyer. Fitting with the rest of the story up to this point, they're serious about taking his life. They're desperate to get Paul for something, for anything. And so Tertius presents their case. Look how he begins. Nothing but sheer flattery towards the governor. We've enjoyed a long period of peace under you. Your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Most excellent Felix everywhere and in every way we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. Look how smarmy he is. He's laying it on so thick, really buttering him up. Most excellent Felix, please will you like us so we can win this case against Paul. Now it's good here to mention just who Felix actually was. Felix actually began life as a, former, as a slave. He was the first former slave to govern a Roman province and was described as a master of cruelty and lust. Instead of long periods of peace, he was actually known for horror, ordering the massacre of thousands of Jewish people in Caesarea. He was not a nice guy. And certainly not worthy of all the silky praise that was coming out of Tertullus's mouth. Quite the opposite, in fact. Tertullus is just straight up lying. And that's how he continues throughout the rest of the accusation, where he accuses Paul of being a troublemaker, causing riots, being a ringleader of the Nazarene sects, desecrating the temple. Note the unintended compliment in verse 5. Tertullus says to Paul, he'd been stirring up trouble all over the world. Like it or not, Acts 1 verse 8 is being worked out the, the unstoppable gospel is going out to the people as God sustains and provides opportunity to speak of him. Tertullus is trying to connect Paul to Nazareth, which was mostly a despised and lowly place. And he even claims, you can see verse 7 in the footnote at the bottom of the page, that the commander Lysias came with much force and snatched Paul away from us and ordered us to come here. Look, they're the bad guys. And then he concludes his accusation, not with any evidence, not with any witnesses. Rather, it's just a plea straight to Governor Felix. Felix, just have a look at him yourself and you'll see how much of a criminal he is. And the Jews back him up. No evidence, no witnesses, just a mere confirmation of what he said. Have a think just how unfair this situation must seem to Paul. How would you react if you were him? Listen to all these lies and smarminess and cringy compliments, knowing full well that you were guilt-free. I don't know about you, but I do not keep my head very well when things seem unfair. Forgive me another football-based illustration, but I was so competitive when I was younger that if things felt even the slightest bit unfair, I would fly off the handle. When I was around eight or nine years old, my dad used to coach my football team, and we would finish our training sessions with a match. One time he was the goalie for my team 
And we ended up losing 10-9. But the bit I just could not get to grips with was that while I was giving my absolute all, scoring goals, running everywhere, he was deliberately letting goals in at the back. In fact, he wasn't even trying to save them. He was deliberately diving the other way. And now, obviously, I can look back slightly less tinted lenses and realise that he was doing the noble thing and keeping it competitive. But it was so unfair at the time. I remember shouting. I was beside myself. I was putting all this effort in and he was, he was making us lose. He got so fed up with my moaning and complaining and arguing that the situation ended with him throwing a Mars bar on my head and we cycled home in deathly silence. <laughs> and to be fair... I'm probably only slightly better at reacting to unfair situations now as I was then. But I wonder how you fare when your colleague at work gets promoted while you clearly put in more effort on that team project or you've been driving around the, the car park in the Pioneer Centre for ages trying to find that spot and then someone just nips up and takes the one free spot which has been there. It's so unfair. How do you react? Paul had every right to feel this situation was unfair. But see how he reacts. We see it in his defence. His own defence this time. A literal courtroom defence. And unlike me, he doesn't fly off the handle. Look how calmly he responds. In verse 10, I gladly make my response. In what situation are you glad to make a response to an accusation? It's only one where you know you're in the right. A prime example of this is in our house. We've got a cleaning rotor. And it's fair to say that I'm prone to forgetting for doing my cleaning chores on the occasional weekend. But on the rare occasion where I do do them and then forget to tick my name off the wall, and then someone comes and accuses me of not doing my cleaning, I can gladly make my defence. Look, I have done my cleaning. Go and look in the living room. You'll see that it doesn't need hoovering because I've done it. That's when you're glad to make a defence. And this must be similar to what Paul felt here. Is that all you've got? The best you can come up with? Some flattery and some made-up charges? I'd gladly make a defence to that. Look how he goes on in verse 14. However, here's what is true. Here's what I do believe. I admit that I worship the God of our fathers. I do follow the way. I believe everything that agrees with the law and the prophets. I even have the same hope in God as these men. There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And then I was ceremonially clean when I was in the temple and there was no crowd with me. You can always picture the mic drop moment as he lays all that out. And then he goes on to mention the potential evidence which not even Tertullus and the Jews provided. The ruckus caused in the Sanhedrin when he proclaimed about the resurrection of the dead. Paul boldly defends himself and takes the opportunity to proclaim what is true about the message of the gospel. And from the defence comes the opportunity. God provides the opportunity for Paul to then preach the gospel to none other than most excellent Felix and his wife, Drusilla. Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, in other words, the gospel, adjourns proceedings, says, let's wait for Lysias before we make a decision. He knows what Paul is saying on Christianity is right and that there's no evidence of what the Jews are claiming. And he still sits on the fence. Why? Maybe he doesn't want to upset the Jews. So Felix makes no legal decision. Paul's given some freedom. And Felix takes the middle ground. Doesn't want to associate himself with either party. 
And just as he makes no legal decision, he makes no spiritual decision either. From verse 24 onwards, we see Felix brings his wife to hear more on what Paul has to say. Much like waiting for the commander Lysias before making a decision in court, it seems very much like our most excellent Felix is incapable of making a decision without a second opinion. He's more interested in others' opinions rather than in his own decision on the person of Jesus. Now, Drusilla, from what I've read, was around 20 years old and was seduced away from her previous husband by Felix and made his third wife. And I suppose their loose morals do well to then explain the topics on which Paul presents to them. Righteousness, self-control and judgment. He doesn't hold back, does he? Here he is speaking the truth of Christianity to one of the most powerful people in the area and his wife. Bloodthirsty, merciless, fearsome. And he meets them with righteousness, self-control and judgment. It's no wonder Felix is afraid upon hearing these. That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you and you can come back. Felix's fear perhaps shows that he understood what Paul was saying. God, being so majestic and powerful and holy, is rightly fear instilling. As are the realities of heaven and hell, either the presence or absence of God for eternity. Hell is rightly something to be afraid of. And Felix still doesn't want to pick a side, so delays it, the decision. And then in verse 26, we learn that Felix's real God that he serves is money. Lanks helped to see a couple of weeks back that Christianity will face opposition from other gods, like Artemis of the Ephesians. And in Felix's world, Christianity is rivaled by money. He's secretly hoping Paul bribes him, maybe for his own financial gain, maybe to actually examine Paul's character on the chance that he does reveal something he can then legally condemn him for. But he leaves Paul in this partial freedom for two years, even though he knew he was innocent. How unfair that must have felt to Paul. So there we have it, a man, Paul, being unfairly treated, persecuted, attacked, tried by Romans, and the outcome is not fair in the slightest. Does that ring a bell? Hopefully that takes you back to Pilate and Jesus. Pilate knew full well that the accused was innocent and guilt-free, and yet he failed to make a decision either. Both governors were scared of man, scared of the Jewish crowds, wanting to please, wanting to gain political advantage. And so Felix leaves and another governor comes in, and Paul is left in prison, rock bottom. Well, let me add a third scene. Vista, what does all of this really look like here for us today? Well, if the examples of these two chapters are anything to go by, we will face threats, we will have to defend the gospel, but God will provide opportunities. There will be threats. All through Acts we've seen that as the gospel spreads, so does the opposition. But I wonder, what is the threat to you in speaking about Jesus? Is it fear of man, like Felix and Pilate, when the people are chatting in the office about a certain topic, relationships or money or religion, and you think, oh, I could say something, but I just don't have the confidence quite. Is it busyness? Of course I want to speak to my friends about Jesus, but when am I going to find the time for that? Is it apathy, either from you or the person you're trying to speak to Jesus to? Have you had this where they say, oh, I really respect you for what you believe, actually. 
but then the kind of apathy from both sides just kind of leads to the conversation dying and you just carry on with your own separate worldviews. Or maybe you're feeling really downhearted. You've been praying and praying for that one person for months and months and it still seems like they're hostile to the gospel. Well, remember the end of Matthew 28, which we looked at around Easter. Take heart that whatever the threat we face, we are commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations by the one who has all authority on heaven and earth, knowing that he is with us always. Take heart, because in the threats, Jesus is with us, helping us to endure. When we're threatened, when we're at rock bottom, the best thing we can do is look to Jesus Christ. Remind yourself of what he did on the cross for us, of everything that he endured, knowing that he can sympathise with us. And with the threat, a time to give a defence will come. Maybe you'll have to defend yourself. Maybe you'll need to be defended by others. Can you remember a time you've had to specifically defend the gospel? Where a question's fired at you and you just think, oh goodness, here we go. So Josh, why do all Christians hate gays? That's one I've had recently. How do you defend Jesus Christ in that situation? It takes preparation, those moments. Paul, who gladly defends himself in, these, in this passage, writes multiple times in the New Testament that we ought to be prepared to give an answer. The same way you prepare for a big presentation you've got coming up, or the big match at the weekend, or the exam season, you put the work in beforehand so that when the threats come your way, you're ready with the answers. So... Get yourself prepared. Pray hard, get your head in the Bible, seek answers to the things you don't understand, because when the threats come, you need to be ready to defend yourself. And thankfully, it's not all in our own strength. Ultimately, we need to trust that God is in control of all things, is in charge of every, every situation, and nothing will happen which he hasn't already ordained. Take heart. That, as with Paul, God is at work sustaining you and will provide you with opportunities to speak of Jesus. And while the opposition may feel enormous, it may feel like you're at rock bottom, some will want to hear it. As Paul endured and then had the opportunity with Felix and his wife, trust that as you endure the opposition, opportunity will come your way as well. And then be prepared in your answers. Paul knew what Felix and Drusilla needed to hear and was bold in speaking truth to them. It's good to note as well, it's not worth obsessing over results. Wouldn't it have been brilliant if Luke ended this chapter by saying, and then Felix and his wife became Christians, they repented and lived humble lives of worship to God. Wouldn't that be great? But no, we don't know what happened to them both. Maybe they did become Christians at some point. But Paul spent at least two years talking to them on these things. And there was no outcome mentioned. And then if you're here today and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, here's the nudge for you. Don't be like Felix. Don't be like Felix. Don't delay in making a decision on Jesus. And in fact, delaying that decision is the same as choosing against him. Because the Bible says all are to die and face judgment. And so therefore not make a decision on him means you are out rather than in with God. But you may be thinking, I need a bit more evidence, or I've all my life to become a Christian, what's, what's the rush? 
Earlier this year, I spent a few days in Ukraine. And from speaking to our friends out there, one of the overwhelming impressions I got is that Christianity is viewed as merely a crutch for the weak and elderly. Is that your view on Christianity? Well, remember, there will be judgment to come. Paul also writes that the day when Jesus comes back will be like a thief in the night. Could be tomorrow, could be a million years time. But he will come back and he will judge both the living and the dead. Now, on its own, this passage is fairly disappointing. It seems a bit like Paul has a really tough time, gets a brief chance to share the gospel, but then yields no fruit. But then in the whole context of Acts, it helps to see how the gospel advances and reaches even those you think would never want to hear the gospel. And these chapters are a call to keep going. Endure the hardships, trusting that God sustains and provides opportunities for you as well. Paul endured when he was at rock bottom and opportunity came from it. So let's take heart in that. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing again. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sustain your people and you do provide opportunities to speak of the unstoppable gospel which will go out despite the opposition. Please help us to prepare ourselves to defend the gospel against the threats which will come our way and then be bold in speaking the truth when those opportunities do arise. Thank you for what we've seen and for Paul's example here, Lord. Please help us delight in that and delight in you this coming week. Amen. Thanks, John.